This is the Fire These Times, and I'm your host, Joey Ayub. Hello, everyone. My name is Joey Ayub. Uh, welcome to the Fire These Times. I'm your host. The way we usually do this is I ask guests and co-hosts and whatnot to just introduce themselves however they want. So why don't we start with Christina, if you don't mind, and then Daniel, you can you can go as well. Sure. Um, my name is Christina Heatherton. I'm talking to you from uh, Hartford, Connecticut, where I'm a professor of American Studies and Human Rights. Daniel? Hi, everyone. I'm Daniel Boscoboynek, and I'm talking to you from Barcelona, Spain, where I work as a, a campaigner and researcher uh, focusing on ecology and uh, human rights. We're going to well, primarily talk about Christina's book, uh, whose title I have here. It's called Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. Uh, Daniel and I were chatting about this, uh, well, the past few days. We're in love with a, a lot, lots of parts in this book, and the table of content is actually something that I enjoy when it's well done, and this is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I really love the review by, um, I'm, I'm going to see if I can pronounce the name not badly, Kianga Yamata Taylor who described the protagonists of the story you tell of the Mexican Revolution. So obviously that's what we're going to be talking about here. And she describes it as such. It's the story of global capitalism's polyglot gravediggers and their struggle to overcome difference and distance to build a better world. Mind just telling us a bit about the kind of the genesis of this book? How did it come about? And if you can also, like, what is it about? It's about the Mexican Revolution, but what about it? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I also very much like that blurb from Kianga Yamada-Taylor, so thanks for reading it. So the book is called Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution, and it's a book about what I call convergent spaces of radical internationalism. So these are socio-spatial sites in which different radical traditions are compressed together and produce new articulations of struggle, which is maybe an overly difficult way of saying any time that people are struggling for change, there's, you know, always a kind of initial moment where people have to evaluate, you know, who's there, who's around the table, who's in the room, where are people coming from? How do they define change? What sort of traditions are they drawing upon? What's, you know, what sort of theories and tactics are they bringing with them? And in the course of any kind of struggle, people produce new articulations of struggle. So I'm particularly interested in the kinds of convergences that happened in the early 20th century uh, that had a relationship to the Mexican Revolution. So the book kind of proposes a few things. One of them is that there's a whole history of internationalism from below that we can trace from this period. I, I think there's something very interesting about displacing the Russian Revolution and the common turn as the kind of lodestar from which all internationalist traditions, mm -hmm. uh, you know, come. And so instead, thinking about this slightly earlier period, the first major social revolution of the 20th century that happened in Mexico, and thinking about the kind of convergences that it, that it provoked. Mm -hmm. So in broad in broad strokes, that's what the book's about. I'm all about displacing the common term, so that's all good. <laughs> Just maybe in a few words for those who may not know exactly what the Mexic uh, Mexican Revolution was about. Can you at least give us some context if that's okay? Sure. Well, you know, thinking about internationalism and in the Mexican Revolution is, you know, maybe not a kind of common sense thing to do. Because the Mexican Revolution is more often thought about as a contained nationalist struggle. Mm -hmm. It's a struggle that breaks out in 1910 
formally it's a struggle from different fractions uh, of the country in Mexico seeking to unseat Porfirio Diaz, who was the president who ruled over Mexico for over 35 years. Diaz, you know, ushered in modernization, you know, brought Mexico into the frenzy of finance capital with, you know, uh, the kind of uneven development that we see happening all over the world, happening quite intensely in Mexico. And while the kind of dynamics of like uh, intensified commercial agriculture, the carving up of the country for new transportation routes to take sugar and uh, henequen fibers from different parts of the country to different ports onto the global market, you know, you had totally uneven results. You had mass dispossession of people. You had a middle class that felt totally disenfranchised because they had no political power. And you had different fractions of the military and foreign capital also competing to unseat uh, the, the president. So, so formally, these are the kind of the sketches of the Mexican Revolution. I think what my story does is to say that there's a, a different history of internationalism that we can draw. And that there's something quite interesting when we think about the uh, advance of U.S. hegemony in relationship to Mexico and the Mexican Revolution, which I'm happy to talk more about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, Daniel, you want to ask the how-to question? <laughs> yeah, I just actually wanted to ask you what you mentioned, like in the displacement of the Comintern. You know, after after reading parts of your book, the Mexican Revolution, which was taught to me as a kid, I grew up in Argentina, and it's kind of a key part of the Latin American curriculum as a fulcrum, really, of Latin American history. But rarely is it situated kind of as part of global history. And I think what your book does really well is position kind of the, the decay of the British Empire and, the, and the, the emergence of American hegemony and how important this event is. I wanted to ask you just why, what explains kind of over time kind of the erasure, I guess, in the mainstream historical narrative, the dominant historical narrative, I guess, the, radic the radicalism, the medical Mexican revolution, and some of these internationalist convergences um, in favor of, I guess, like a a perspective that, which looks more at the Russian Revolution. Mm. How did how did you yeah how do you understand that? L let me see if I can take that in in two different directions. First, I mean the Mexican Revolution became fully consecrate, consecrated in the development of the like modern twentieth century Mexican state, right? So a lot of Mexican commentators have talked about the revolution as being frozen in time. There are ways in which the uh, ascendancy of the of the pre the political party that comes out of the revolution, you know, which rules for most of the 20th century, draws upon the legitimacy of this revolution as its founding moment. So there's a lot of ways where it's self-consciously stuck in time. Mm. The way that I'm thinking about internationalism is actually quite different from the kind of trajectory that moves from the common turn, right? The types of organizations that are happening explicitly to explicitly develop international solidarity are obviously not the same as what happens in Mexico. But I think that that's actually quite interesting, the sort of messy experiments, the type of convergences that occur because of Mexico's, you know, uh, physical and geopolitical relationship uh, in proximity to the United States. There's a, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that this is a history that's well known, that's just completely suppressed. I think that there's just a more consecrated narrative of Mexican state formation that substitutes for it. So that's part of the reason we don't know so much about this history. We were talking about the, the, the table of content. I'm someone who, I'm, I'm autistic and I like it when things are a bit organized in a way that is, are easy, is easy to digest. And this is one of them because in the table of content, you, you, I'll read some of the titles, like how to make a flag. Well, the first one actually is the introduction, how to make a rope, and then how to make a flag, internationalism and the pivot of 1848. 
then how to make a map, how to make a university, how to make love, how to make a living, how to make a dress. And then the conclusion is uh, how to make history. There's very much a, a sense while reading the book that you always go back and forth from like the, the local to the global, we might say, or maybe like the, the small scale to the large scale. Can you talk to us about that? Maybe like as even as a, as a strategy for writing this book, maybe for engaging readers, because it certainly worked for me. And maybe give us like a couple of those examples, because my mind was blown by a number of them, like how to make a rope and how you, yeah, go for it. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if I'm giving two short answers here. I know we're supposed to speak for like 50 years today, but I, uh, I, I, I suppose I can say just a little bit about, you know, who I am and how I come to this project. Yeah, so, you know, I'm quite influenced and motivated by the tradition of social history or what some people call history from below, mm -hmm. right? And so for a lot of people, this is, you know, most prominently understood as E.P. Thompson, like seminal works, like E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class, mm -hmm. right? So the how-to is a bit of a hat tip to that, to be able to say, you know, we're thinking about this kind of history from below. How do people make history? But the particular trajectory that I've been, the particular tradition, I should say, that I've been trained in is, uh, you know, one that's rooted in abolition, one that's quite heavily influenced by people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who I think profoundly understood the contingency of history. And so the, the function of understanding how something was made was also to say that it could have happened otherwise. It can be unmade. It can be made differently, right? Those are the traditions that I wanted to signal and being able to say, like, this whole book is going to be about the making and unmaking of something. Uh, because, you know, as I talk about in, in the conclusion, I think something very damaging happens when we inherit a sort of nostalgia of past traditions, mm -hmm. right, as fully formed as things that, you know, we pledge loyalty to, rather than the kind of messy work of having to figure this out in our own time. So, you know, the, the, I wanted the book to be an invitation. And so I thought this kind of repetition of how to make, how to make was a way to invite the reader into thinking, you know, mm -hmm. well, this was how it was made. How do we make it now? So every chapter is about the making of a different convergent space. Is there any particular one that you uh, wanted me to talk no, about? No, I mean, not necessarily. The rope one is the one that, I forgot if it was the rope or the flag one. I think it was the rope one where you mentioned that it was direct, it's directly linked to uh, like post-slavery America and even the post is put, it's kind of uh, put into question, i.e., you know, uh, echoing W.B. Du Bois. How something as simple as a rope, obviously, when you take all of its constituents uh, into consideration and where where they are made and who makes them, then how that rope is made and then where is it sold, you know, that sort of thing. I found that particularly fascinating, if, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, sure. So the, the challenge for the opening of this book was to be able to talk about revolution in a way that I think defamiliarized what that term meant, right? I mean, as soon as you say you're talking about revolution, you know, there's already 500 guys on Twitter that are going to fight you about <laughs> it. So you know, so the opening is called How to Make a Rope. And I, I open the book talking about the making of the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century lynch rope. And as you mentioned, the way I do it is by talking about the component parts. So th this is, you know, the, the lynch rope in the United States. Uh, and I talk about how a fair amount of the composite, composite fibers came from U.S. imperial control over the Philippines, right? It was a fiber called uh, uh, abaca. Mm -hmm or manila from the Philippines. There are also cotton and hemp strands that fibers that are grown from Jim Crow sharecropping regimes in the United States. 
There are other fibers, Indian jute, Russian hemp, but I talk about how, you know, given the various unstable supply of these different fibers, uh, in the turn of the 20th century, the U.S. increasingly had to look to Mexico, right? And in the southernmost state of the Yucatan, there are fibers called henequen and thistle. They're like uh, related to the agave mm -hmm. uh, plant. And they're used mostly to bind bushels of twain, twine and, and, and bales of hay. And so, uh, you know, part of what I do in the opening is to just kind of trace. Here's like, you know, the, 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 the rope itself requires the kind of twining together of these fibers. So you get a sense of how the world is connected. And then even within those spaces, you know, in, in the Yucatan, I talk about how there are, you know, dispossessed indigenous people, uh, you know, who are being conscripted to work on these haciendas. There is also this kind of incredible world of indentured workers who are coming from the Canary Islands, Spain, China, 3,000 workers from Korea who are getting, you know, pulled into these haciendas to produce this rope. And then, you know, thinking just about like, what kind of nasty forms of coercion and gendered violence occurred on these haciendas? You know, you get a sense that, you know, the, the rope itself was a twisting together of relations of expropriation, exploitation. You know, this is the criminalized, the dispossessed, the violated, the indebted, right? So you have a sense of these coexisting regimes of accumulation just in the understanding of the commodity itself. Mm -hmm. But what I also do is I say, you know, but by unbraiding those strands, you get a sense of how the world is tied in struggle. So, you know, mm -hmm. I try to point to some of the ways in which those struggles against U.S. military occupation and imperialism, uh, you know, Jim Crow regimes, uh, you know, how these things are tied together. And I, I, I think in a kind of surprising way, you know, I, I tie a lot of this to Haymarket. Because of course, right, the hay in Haymarket is tied together by the henequen fibers that are grown in the Yucatan, right? And there's this extraordinary way in which when you, you think about the lynchings that are happening in the United States, when you think about the repression of political organizers like the Haymarket martyrs, when you think about the violence being done to Mexican people along the border, when you think about the extraordinary violence, the whipping and lynchings that's being done to indigenous people, you get this very concrete material sense of what the violence of global capital at this moment looked mm -hmm. like, right? But you also get a sense of how the world in, you know, both conscious and also unconscious ways are tied together in struggle. So this is how I kind of lay the groundwork to be able to say, this is the story we're going we're gonna to tell, mm -hmm. right? So this is, it's a little messier. It's a little more wily. It's not as clean as like, Here's the story of international organizations and how they conceptualized the world, split it into pieces and organized it accordingly. Here's the chaos of the world system and here's the negations that it itself produced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. I have one follow-up question, Joy. I know you wanted to ask a, an in-depth question particularly on the, um, but my question is really, I mean, I come at this with kind of a popular education approach. And I think you do this extraordinary job, uh, as you've just mentioned, of of braiding and unbraiding and, and just bringing in the history of hanging, the history of, of, of violence and repression and weaving that into the materiality of, of the rope itself. And my, I'm a little bit curious on your own process as well. You managed to, I mean, I think as, as many of us as internationalists try and do is just, I mean, we're, we're weaving work constantly. But I'm curious on your own, I know, your deep archival and also research process. How did you like go about telling this incredible kind of material social story um, is it following the materials and then finding their own histories? Is it all 
as you know, as pop culture, we're constantly struggling to, to try and show people the way in which our struggles are constantly braided and unbraided. And you do this like you know exceptionally well in time as well, not even in the present. Um, but I'm just curious about, a little bit about your process, how you found yeah, the lucidity, the clarity to get to this point of braiding, basically. No, I appreciate. It. I appreciate everything that you say, and um, you know, I feel like for me, the, the the highest compliment to be able to say, you know, it's it's something that 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 teaches or helps, you know, articulate something that I think people already feel, but maybe need a kind of visual handhold. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, for this story in particular, I would just say that I there were maybe two two things that happened. The first was that. I was looking through rope catalogs, cordage catalogs in the early 20th century, just to, just to verify a fact, first of all, right? I was interested in what percentage the you know, composite of a certain kind of rope sold by a certain company, how much of it came from Mexico, right? But I had never looked through rope catalogs <laughs> in this period, which I kind of am encouraging everybody to do. They're so fascinating. They're really fascinating documents. Because they do tell a little history of the, the commodity. There's poetry. There's like short histories. It's a really sort of strange genre, you know, like, I mean, I think the equivalent today would just be like a kind of catalog, mm. right? So, uh, you know, first I was like, oh, this is very interesting, but I wasn't exactly sure what to do with it. You know, it, it's just sort of company propaganda. It was actually in the kind of more traditional catalog part where there were diagrams, you know, about how do you tie the rope? How do you splice the rope? How, you know, how, how, do you, how do you operationalize this commodity, right? And even though they were talking about different kinds of hoops and loops and things that you could make for industrial use, I was just flipping these pages and all I saw were nooses. And I was like, what would it mean in, in, you know, 1902 or 1910 or 1912, any of the periods that I was looking at these catalogs, what, what would it mean to have that kind of bifurcated consciousness, right? To have a sense of like, I'm, I'm looking, I mean, this is, this is terrifying to see a catalog of nooses, but also this is, a, you know, a totally innocuous industrial catalog of goods. And I think the pandemic, I would say, gave me some permission to like, there was one part of me that was like, I have to finish this draft. <laughs> you know, I've, I'm so overdue to the press. I just have to finish this. I just have to write. I just need to take the detail I was looking for and go. And I mean, you know, I was in New York City in the, at the start of the pandemic. I was surrounded by so much death, right? And I think it just sort of forced a confrontation. It forced in a lot of people, like, what are we doing here and why, right? And uh, so instead of just kind of racing off with the story I thought I wanted to tell, I had to sit with this kind of uncertainty. I I had to sit with this bifurcation until I could see that that was the whole story, right? The fact that you can, you know, move through a world of capital and also exist in a world of like utter racist terror, right? And pretend that they were separate while they're the same thing. And to just kind of, I didn't know how to articulate. I had to write my way out of it. But I think the the just the the extreme and utterly preventable tragedy of that moment gave me the permission. Mm-hmm. So that's how I say it. It's a way of making visible that which is many forces, let's say, try to make invisible. But like, there's a reason why when you you buy an iPhone and whatnot, you don't know the name of the worker that made that specific component or the workers for that for that matter, because you have multiple of them. 
And that's because like it's not quote unquote good for business, right? There there is something pretty almost like straightforward about it. Like you you know this is not good for business because you you want all of these positive associations in one's mind, and in many ways this isn't anything new. I like the idea that uh, Dan you just mentioned like braiding. It made it made me think of that book like braiding sweetgrass as well, like the title of that book. There is something about while reading this book of yours, which as you said, like you try to identify all of these different convergences that that occurred in this time and place uh, in and of itself w- without like also limiting it to that time and place because of course there's lots of background lots of things were happening around mexico and not just in mexico and lots of people who were from mexico and not from mexico and so on and obviously the legacy of the haitian revolution uh, speaking of something like daniel mentioned something that's not as quote-unquote mainstream maybe i feel like the, the, Haiti Re- the haitian revolution is maybe the 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 example like par excellence in some sense. And there is a link to Haiti that we'll get into, I think, in this conversation because you talk about Haiti as well. But yeah, so the convergence is something that I find quite interesting because it's sort of uh, the, the methodology, I mean, because it tells me that there's a way of starting somewhere within your analysis, let's say, without necessarily knowing where you're going to end up and without necessarily having this you know, it's it's sort of like you have a question and you're seeking the answer rather than how often we, we have an answer in mind and we're trying to frame the question to fit that answer. And I think this we see this like uh, often these days. Daniel, you're, you're my man when it comes to talking about the links between the past and futurisms and that sort of thing. And I should say for listeners that we had a conversation about this on this podcast, uh, what, I don't know, like a couple of months ago or something, so you can look into it. So do you want to try and frame it and help my messy brain right now, Daniel, by, by talking about this, when, you, when you're reading the sections that you read, what did it make you think about the, the present moment? Yeah. Um, and I hope I didn't put you on make, the spot. No, I, a, a tiny bit, but I kind of have like a, <laughs> I'll make a very short reflection and a kind of a reflected question that I really want to offer to Christina. Perfect, I think, yeah. I, think um, I, I, I would love to cite the person I heard this from, but I, I, their, their name slips my mind, if anyone knows. But I heard someone talking about possible paths the other day. To me, just reading, reading the fragments of the book um, that I could, what struck me, it struck me with excitement. It struck me with excitement because I think it opened the space, this window into, into, into more possible paths. And I, and I feel the same and every time I encounter any kind of uh, social history or history from below. It's a way to rewrite story of erasure that often we inherit um, and that lets us rewrite off the story of erasure that often we assume for the present so i, I want to sit with just i think um you know we both joe and i, I love uh, love history but i think there's this personal kind of side to the historian which i'd love to hear about which is kind of like on a um you know as someone who as an activist as someone as someone commits to struggle what did engaging with all these braids do for you in the way that you looked uh, look at the world today, and I think that 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 what you just reflected on, you know, finishing this book in New York in the middle of this time of the normalization of mass death as well, you know, this period that we've just um, that we're still living in, absolutely mm-hmm. in no way the pandemic that we're currently in. But I'm curious, and also as for you personally, um, in the acknowledgments, you write incredibly beautifully about the way in which history should transform us as we learn it, as we do it. And mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you more about your teachers later on, but um, I kind of want to ask you as well, like. The, the past is there to revolutionize how we think always about the present. Um, how did it revolutionize you um, in where your outlook is today? Mm. I, I, I hope this answers your question. I feel compelled to explain maybe one, you know, one thing that brought me to this work. You know, this is such a 
tremendous time of uncertainty. And I think in times of uncertainty, people reach for certain things, mm -hmm. right? And I think that we have a fully developed discourse of reactionary politics and the kind of mythical past that feels very certain. And it feels certain because it situates the, you know, the person invoking it as a protagonist in a way that feels very safe and certain. And I think we're, I, 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 I think even though present company excluded, we're less good on the left at, uh, you know, thinking about the kind of narratives of certainty and the kind of like uh, ways of thinking about history without, as I think, Joe, you mentioned earlier, already knowing the point we're trying to prove mm. and kind of where's waldoing it in history <laughs> to find, you know, the person or the episode to be able to say, you see, and that's why this position is right. You know, the where the, the, the place that I learned uh, social history was really in England in uh, 2007 was the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the British slave trade. Uh, and I had I had helped start a radical history group in Bristol, England, which is on the west of England. And so we were already doing a lot of different, um, you know, like radical history events, counter events, counter histories. And so, but in preparation for the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the British slave trade, you know, we just saw this like orgy of nationalist mythology, right? So this was just like this extraordinary uh, recapitulation of the history of abolition as if it was done just by William Wilberforce, mm. if it was done by British politicians who, you know, like they were the protagonists, they saw how e evil the trade was, and they were just so moved in their soul, you know, amazing grace to, to, to stop it. And, you know, Bristol is an uh, Afro-Caribbean city, right? So there was this deeply felt rage that there was this was not the history of abolition and that there's a different uh, inheritance of the present, depending on how that history was narrated. So a lot of our events were about talking about the counter history of abolition, you know, thinking with CLR James, thinking with people like Richard Hart, thinking about uprisings throughout the Caribbean and the Atlantic world, what Julia Scott talks about is the common wind, you know, like how did people make the trade ungovernable, unreproducible? Like, I, you know, how do we think about the, the ways in which abolitionist struggles developed, you know, how, as I talk about in the book, they developed their own kind of internationalism. That experience gave me a very keen sense about how past, present, and future uh, are all totally linked. If if the history of abolition was something that was a part of national mythology, you know, then they become the inheritors of that history. They, they not only constitute it, but they inherit its meaning and they determine its future. So I, I think in real time, you know, we did, we, we, I mean, we would do walking tours in the rain that, you know, like 50 people would come out because they were just like, they wanted to understand why was it after the abolition of the trade that so many colonial slave owners got paid back, mm -hmm. right? There was reparations, but it was for the slave owners, right? And it went into things like the glass industry, the, the train station in Bristol. So, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we had talks, we had guerrilla theater, we had art exhibitions, and it just, there was just such a powerful sense that this mattered. Uh, so, you know, I think some of how I understand these relationships comes very keenly from those kind of activities. And um, 
I'll just say this too, you know, like I think it's a kind of tenet of social history that if you want to tell the story of working class and poor people, you have to go to the places that their records are kept, right? The welfare rolls, the prison records, right? Sometimes what you have to do is follow a well-known person in and then see what's around them, see what kind of other histories you can gather. And, and this principle of uncertainty is essential right? Because if you go in assuming you're going to tell, you know, a certain kind of tale of somebody's victorious, heroic political becoming, well, that's what you'll find, right? But if you're open to the fact that all you have are, are, are kind of questions, right? You know that there's something, there's a, a, a place that's important to look, but you have no reassurance of what you'll find. You will find people that are imperfect, you know? You'll find people who, like, they betray each other, they fail, but but that's it, you know, we're humans. That is the, 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 you know, the record of human history. And so not being afraid of that uncertainty, I think can allow a lot of other narratives to emerge. Mm. I, I personally find it quite interesting when I go back to read some of the, um, often it's like a journal or a memoir, an autobiography, that sort of thing. Sometimes it's a biography that has a lot of uh, quotes and whatnot and diary entries and that sort of thing. And you see how, I was spacing out on who exactly I'm thinking about. It might have been Bakunin. I don't remember. But like a known Russian thinker at the time was like also not a good person. Again, may not have been Bakunin. I kind of I don't want to smear the dude. He's dead. But like you know, I forgot who exactly. But it's something that's not uncommon. Like there there has been. I remember I went to this conference. It was in 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 Loughborough in the in in England. The theme of the conference, at least theme of the presentation I went to, was on the Spanish Civil War. And of course, the you know the leftist, communist, anarchist, whatever resistance that went against uh, the the Franco and pro-Franco forces, which were backed by Italy and Germany at the time. And I just remember like one one of them who was like one of the one of the main people, one of the main protagonists of that of the resistance uh, was also racist. Like it was saying you know bad things about North Africans because the, many of them were inscripted by conscripted by Franco, of course, to kind of do the dirty work. You know, and that sort of thing. It. It's a weird thing because ultimately you're discovering that people aren't pure, essentially, and they they may have been they may have done something good, they may have participated in something important, if not good, at the very least significant, important, worth studying, basically, but were themselves flawed and may have had uh, you know what we consider today to to be antiquated views. Uh, certainly, when it comes to gender and race, this was pretty common. Uh, something that I remember Emma Goldman, I forgot who she was talking to, but it might have. Ben Kropotkin also might be confusing here. I seem to be confusing my Russians here. Uh, <laughs> uh, it might have been Kropotkin uh, who had like this also antiquated uh, view on gender or something like that. And so there's a lot of that. There, you know, you have those revolutionaries that kind of lock down on art and that they think dancing is ridiculous or you know, or it's too effeminate, quote unquote. And you will have that essential patriarch, essentially patriarchal attitude within nominally revolutionary spaces. And I think anyone who's been involved in organizing, that, that's, just, that's just the case. Uh, you will have exclus like exclusionary tendencies in pretty much any space, or at least most spaces. And these days, it feels like this is becoming more and more talked about, at the very least, at the very least in, this, in the spaces that, that I've, ha I've had these encounters. Talking about like, is our is our space um, disability inclusive? Is our space gender exclusive? You know that sort of thing. With all of that in mind, at first I don't know if you have any reflections on that. Uh, feel free to share them. Otherwise, I have like my next question. 
something that I talk about in the book is the ascendancy of U.S. hegemony, mm -hmm. right? Which I understand as the ways in which very you know, small, particular, specific interests become generalized and felt as in the general interest, right? Whether or not they are. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more in relationship to Du Bois and the kind of small shareholder mm -hmm. um, sensibilities. But I, I would say, you know, the point that I'm trying to make there is that people can tend to take on the characteristics of the states, uh, you know, the, the kind of political formations within which they're in, right? So a lot of my work has been about policing, right? Policing and neoliberalism at this moment. And so, you know, I think if I hear you right, there's, there, there is like, look, you know, I mean, I, I, I think I, I can't make any like full denunciations of any kind of interrogations of history, right? I mean, it's extremely important to be able to contextualize people. You know, oftentimes uh, race and gender and sexuality are extraordinary blind spots mm -hmm. that change the way that we interpret different thinkers. But I do think that there is this kind of like shooting fish in a barrel type of um you know, not very difficult, not very challenging, extremely neoliberal mm -hmm. type of scholarship that says, you know, well, you want to, you know, like kill an idol, go and find somebody that's important to a different movement and show how they were extremely problematic mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. view with the implication being that therefore that way of thinking is, is, you know, similarly illegitimate. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is kind of like a cop mentality under neoliberalism. It's something that feels like you know, in that denunciation, you become empowered by the ability to denounce, yeah. right? And I think it's a false power. And I think the kind of like, mm -hmm. the trick of it all is that what are we doing but perfecting a project of liberalism, right? By, by always denouncing our radical histories as being imperfect. Mm -hmm. I mean, who needs perfect history? Mm -hmm. Some of that desire, it can put us at such a paralyzing impasse to figure out how we deal with the moment now when it feels like the only tools available to you are denunciation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. <laughs> there, there's this amazing term, uh, uh, let me see, yeah, by Ida B. Wells of like, about lynching specifically, they mentioned like, as not just forms of racist terror, but bloody rituals of aspirational authority. And I love that term, aspirational authority. And I, I was actually thinking if you can we can even think of like what does aspirational authoritarianism looks like because some of the authoritarian tendencies that we see today are aspirational uh, i'm thinking for example of the anti trans quote unquote debate that we see in in well in the us especially now but also in the uk so it, it usually it's may it may not be as visibly quote unquote obvious if you want as a rope because I think now in the popular imagination, we can associate those nooses with the lynchings of predominantly African-American men in, in, in the uh, modern U.S. South, but not just, of course. But it's, so it's not always something that is as uh, visibly obvious. It can be something that is removed rather than something that's taken. Like in the U.S., we can think of, of course, the, the whole anti-abortion stuff that's uh, very much ongoing, uh, taking away the rights that were gained as a way of uh, kind of expressing that aspirational authority because they're, they're saying something with that. They, they're, they're actually saying something else when they're actually talking. They're saying, oh, this is about protecting every life. I am pro-life, you know, that sort of thing. But what they're actually doing is very different, as we know. And the facts never, if, like rarely, if at all, seem to 
uh, stop that. So like to, to give an obvious example, like if we uh, if we are talking to someone who's quote unquote poor life in that situation and say, well, actually, if you legalize, if you make abortion illegal, all you're making is making it more dangerous and that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And if you are actually poor life, you should care about every child who's not taken care of. You know, if you make all of these arguments, usually you may not like they may not disagree in in like uh theory but it's still it's almost like emotionally it doesn't fill what they're what they're what they're looking for what they're striving for if that makes sense and i just i use kind of random mm -hmm. not random but like uh different examples to try and make that point but i find i find it very interesting, very interesting this idea of aspirational authority and I, I would say like aspirational authoritarianism is something that we've seen in these past decade or whatever whenever we want to start of trying to create a or trying to impose a vision of the world that you or the person who is kind of engaging in that is trying to hold hold to dear life right like as if it's so fragile and you know being so threatened by someone who's not male or female or someone who was assigned male at birth but isn't you know that sort of thing someone who's who's non-binary all of that stuff being so threatened to the extent that there's essentially what we can call a witch hunt going on now. To to that tells me so much about the 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 time we're living in. And I'm thinking about the US because you're based there, but there are there are parallels a bit everywhere in the world. And how that changes, right? Like it it used to be just a few years ago, most of the obsession was with Mexicans, and then at some point it became uh, I saw Muslims and then Mexican and then Muslims again, and now with trans people, and then even the language that's used. Like, you know, there are trans terrorist groups and that sort of thing that I'm seeing now in, in the U.S., right, especially. There are these, it, it's, I don't know, I can't really pinpoint exactly the, the, it feels like there should be a term for this and probably is, but I'm not thinking about it. But yeah, maybe I'll just stick to aspirational. There's something that they're trying to mm -hmm. do something that they're not really succeeding. And by even if they cannot succeed, the very least that they can do is make sure that everyone else suffers in one way or another. Like they can't, mm -hmm. they, it's, it's in a weird way, like they can't be with themselves. And I mean, this is a bit psycholo psychologizing, but there, there is that element to it. And so the link to this conversation that I'm trying to make in this extremely chaotic way, which I sometimes do, is what, what is it about the Mexican revolution, which as you explain in your book and the Haitian, the Haitian revolution, maybe this is our way of, of talking about that as well. What was it? Um, actually, let me let me focus on the Haitian one, if that's okay with you. What was it about that specific context and that revolution that was so dangerous, so threatening, that it requires such a transformation of what we call the, US, the United States in in this in this conversation that made it so enduring? And why, to this day, do we not talk about it in the way that you do talk about it in this book? I don't know if this is kind of a repetition of what we talked about before. If so, just tell me it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just say a few things about aspirational authority, yeah. and I'll do my best to try to link all the things that you've talked about. Every single thing that you've <laughs> Every single about. one okay. of them, yeah. <laughs> so I'll say this first off. So, you know, I mean, a lot of my work has been around surveillance, policing, housing, racism, militarism. And I, I was always struck by the fact that the first use of aerial surveillance recorded in the Americas was in the French colony of Saint-Domingue in the late 18th century, right? The device was a hot air balloon, mm. and it was launched from the Galifat plantation. And, uh, you know, uh, historian Peter Limbaugh says, he describes it as the 
illusion of omniscient, mm. right? You know, mm. you can kind of imagine these French colonial passengers taking off from this Galifat plantation, you know, and adopting this vision of the kind of skies, right, to complement this colonial vision of land, right? You know, the ability, so the illusion of omniscience is this kind of idea that you can know all and see all. So why this is so interesting is because the first insurrection of the Haitian Revolution breaks out at the Galifat Plantation, the same mm. place where this hot air balloon was launched. So, you know, again, I feel like the history of revolution is always a, a dealing with this kind of bifurcated site, right? Mm. This idea of like the kind of, in some places, it's, you know, colonial capitalist arrogance, but, you know, you want to think about aspirational authority, right? Think about the colonial passengers going up in a hot air balloon, <laughs> believing that they have complete dominance over air, land, and sea. And not being able to see what's right beneath mm. them, you know, that that completely upends their, you know, the, the entire sugar economy, the, the jewel of the French colonial empire, the engine of its economy. Right. I mean, I think it's just like an extraordinary detail that reveals so much. Wow. So, you know, on one hand, I feel like you could make a kind of transhistorical argument about how aspirational authority is always racist, colonial, gendered, right, throughout time, and there's a kind of flatness to it. Personally, I'm, I'm a little wary about transhistorical explanations. Mm -hmm. I feel like if we're not rooting them in the specific time, place, conditions in which things develop, you know, we can just sort of lean on very easy, kind of convenient, comfortable yeah. answers. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I do in the book is I think with Du Bois and Giovanni Arrighi about what Arrighi calls systemic cycles of accumulation. So he's very interested in thinking about like hegemons within different systemic cycles, right? So, you know, the, the, the British cycle kind of sunsets in the late 19th century when the U.S. hegemonic cycle emerges. And I think this is perfectly in line with how Du Bois is talking about a new modality of empire, what he calls the new imperialism. Mm -hmm. it, it, it comes into being in the same period. And what's so fascinating is that this is how, you know, this is where Giovanni Arrighi is marking the advent of, of U.S. hegemony. So why this is important to me is that I think Arrighi does very good, as you say, big picture thinking about the global capitalist system. And so does Du Bois. But Du Bois, in a few pieces, namely The African Roots of War in 1915, and also an article simply called Mexico in 1914, he's really thinking not just about these kind of broad transformations of a new modality of imperialism coming into being, but the kind of subjectivities that accompany them, mm -hmm. right? So here's where he's talking about what he calls the small shareholders of empire, right? This idea, this fraudulent idea that, you know, men, and it's a, it's a gendered identity, can believe that their interests are one and the same with the financiers that are emergent at this moment. So for, you know, Du Bois narrates it as like, you know, here's this seemingly liberatory era of capital coming into being, where no longer is it just the kind of like, uh, you know, in an earlier period, the, you know, the, the, the kings, the absolutist rulers, the, you know, aristocracy that are uniquely able to uh, accumulate wealth. But in the seemingly democratized moments, it's the, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the everyday man. It's the small shareholder, right? Uh, people can imagine themselves as beneficiaries of a, you know, new regime of finance coming into being. I promise this will get to the questions that you <laughs> I asked. I mean, it takes, so, me, it takes me an hour to ask a question, so please take your time. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Du Bois, so, you know, Du Bois is this really interesting thing in looking at the kind of, he, he looks at what we might just kind of term racism in the period. And he says, you have to understand this as an iteration of this new regime of finance coming into being, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not simply that, uh, you know, like people in the U.S. have these horrific things to say about Filipinos or about Mexicans or about Haitians, right? Uh, or Dominicans or people in the Congo, right? That like if 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 Firestone Rubber Company is going to extract raw materials in a different part of the world, like there's this complementary subjectivity that becomes generalized about how people in the United States imagine their own relationship to Brazil or to the Congo, you know, or to any of these new sites of investment and extraction. Mm. So Du Bois sees this as like, it's, it's the kind of, for him, this is why it's hegemonic. It's a specific interest represented as the general interest, but it's, it's fraudulent. Right. And so part of the point that I try to make in the book is how this is always, this is a, a racist and gendered imaginary. But I, I do think about how this is gendered. And I, I guess I just explain it all that way as a way to say that if we do think with Origi and Du Bois about this moment, one thing that's particularly relevant is if, if that late 19th century, early 20th century moment is about the emergence of U.S. hegemony, the kind of chaos, the kind of uncertainty, the, 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 the particular violence and transphobia, right, and extraordinary misogyny that accompanies the aspirational authority of this moment, I would say is kind of reflective of the, like, you know, this is the systemic cycle. Mm -hmm. This is a lot of people have said, you know, is a chaos thrown about great threat to the legitimacy of U.S. hegemony, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, you know, similarly, if Du Bois is asking us to think of the kind of specific as an iteration of the global, uh, you know, I would say that these kind of characteristics that you're talking about are similarly, uh, you know, a smaller iteration of a kind of global moment of uncertainty, particularly in the mm-hmm. U.S. Not exclusively, but I, I would just want to contextualize it in mm-hmm. that way. Daniel, I know that you had a lot of thoughts on Haiti, but not just Haiti. And I'm just sitting with that fascinating invitation to see the moment we're in now politically as this kind of... Um... You know, the, it's kind of the, the famous Gramsci quote, right? Mm-hmm. Like in, in the interregnum of transitions, where the monsters appear, and mm-hmm. and then as as U.S. Germany sees like it's all the cracks emerging, we're in this moment of well, looking at the U.S. but also looking around, and looking at how different hegemonies are breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious. I mean, I kind of want to move to to your incredible focus, which is on movements and grassroots movements, and what brings us together as well is internationalism, which I want us to dig deeper into. Um, and as you dig deeper into the book. So I think, again, the question is overall, like coming back to the Mexican Revolution is what were some of those, if you can sketch out, and the, the book, you know, this, we could, we would need, I think, a whole, just an audio book, I think, to do justice to the book, of course. But um, to sketch out some of the kind of internationalist responses, but also you make these distinctions in the book between different kinds of uh, internationalisms, mm-hmm. between liberal, liberal, revolutionary, cursed, abolitionist internationalisms. So I want to, for 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 our, for our listeners, for for our readers, um, if you can just bring them down to sketch out a little bit, what what are some of the internationalisms that appear around the time at the beginning of the twentieth century, and how can maybe following this kind of beautiful invitation that you make to us to look at the moment we're in now as maybe some kind of iteration uh, of different of a of, of an end of a cycle, an opening of a new cycle, how might these internationalisms guide us today? Mm. Hmm. The most surprising 
thing to a lot of people is that internationalism was not a term coined by Marx and Engels. It was coined by Jeremy Bentham, mm-hmm. right? Who is, I think, for, uh, you know, I mean, particularly in the U.S., is most famously associated with the theory of the panopticon, mm-hmm. you know, and its implementation in the prison. The idea that you can internalize uh, systems of surveillance you know, and, you know, like structurally, there's the idea that the, you know, the guard tower that can potentially see every single cell, uh, you know, is an iteration of this. You know, I think that something very interesting happens to our conception of internationalism if we just kind of follow it through with Bentham. So, Hmm. you know, to make a very long and complicated story, maybe slightly less long, (laughs) you know, I try to tell the story of the British ships, right? So I try to think about this concept of liberal internationalism coming about in an era of British hegemony, right? And this is relevant because the idea of the panopticon uh, actually comes from the construction of British ships. It's the, the idea is not Jeremy's, it's his brother Samuel's. And it's an idea that he developed while he was overseeing the construction of British ships on dockyards, right? And, uh, you know, part of the practice that, uh, you know, try to smash worker organizing, try to crush, you know, these customary practices where, you know, uh, British workers would often take whatever was kind of like the leftover scraps, they'd put it in their pockets, you'd burn it as firewood, or you'd, you know, you'd, you'd cook with it or something like that. Uh, And as shipbuilding became increasingly rationalized, these customary practices of just kind of like moderate compensation, I mean, for goodness sakes, like, you know, you work at a bagel shop, there are bagels that get thrown out, you eat one, it's not like you're going to get fired. But the more tightly rationalized the process becomes, the more these small customary acts become criminalized. And it's Samuel Bentham that's part of surveilling these operations. You know, so I think about the construction of British ships because I think the military base of British hegemony is its naval power. So it's very important to think about the ship. But I also think about the ships in all these other ways. Uh, you know, arguably, Arrighi and some other political theorists talk about how the capital uh, that enabled the, uh, you know, the the sailing force of the British, uh, it, it, you know, its ability to become a creditor nation largely came from the tribute and taxes that it made from colonial goods, particularly in India. So you think about the transformation of the Indian economy from something that's like a subsistence agriculture to the production of, you know, monoculture crops for British colonial trade of things like opium, right? So you have these like ferocious contradictions of Indian colonial subjects who are starving while the grain that's being harvested right in front of them is being taken to be sold, you know, by on British ships for other people to buy. The Indian, you know, India also was forced to produce opium. And obviously that opium was sold by British merchants to China. It was part of the colonization of Hong Kong. Right. So, you know, and and, you know, even though the British slave trade was abolished in 1807, right, you have a number of these ships continuing to operate as illegal uh, slavers, uh, slave vessels after that period. So, you know, I just ask the reader to think about everything that's combined on the ships, right, from the capital that undergirded its construction to the grains that's carried that's taken from the mouths of, you know, starving, sometimes skeletal colonial subjects you know, to enslaved African people whose lives are treated as if they're commodities to the wood of the ships, right? Because the really extraordinary thing is that 
you know, the wood for the mass of British ships was often taken from German forests, right? So in an era of great enclosure, you know, where similarly customary practices of people just being on the land, farming on the land, you know, cutting down timber to build things, to cook things became criminalized practice because those, that, that those forests became privatized, right? You have uh, this intense period of dispossession, of criminalization, right? And, uh, you know, the, the, the wood from those forests, these are the forests the Brothers Grimm talked about. This is Hansel and Gretel, right? The, the forests, the, the trees from those forests, they're, they're felled, they're floated down the Rhine, they're transported to England, and they often become the masts of these ships. Why is that important? Because this is the dispossession that Karl Marx saw that initially turned him from a very liberal journalist to a revolutionary, right? How do you understand how the state can be operationalized in service to capital while dispossessing and immiserating the people who are just trying to survive, right? So, you know, so to contrast these kind of different visions of internationalism coming into being, one internationalism that's a kind of Jeremy Bentham internationalism, the production of markets, you know, what becomes the advent of a, a, a certain regime of finance, you know, to the kind of like revolutionary internationalism or the abolitionist international, uh, you know, of this period, I feel like you have to be, you have to understand these things as conjoined together. And again, you know, how we understand them producing their, their own negation. Mm. That's, that's, that's part of the way I would respond to your very beautiful question. <laughs> Made me think of, well, a couple of things. One is very, uh, a pointless comment, which is that if people want to visit Jeremy Bentham's body, it is uh, exhibited in London. <laughs> it's a thing. You go to UCL and his body is stuffed and you could just see it. It's in a glass glass box. <laughs> and I I didn't um, know about that. And I just went to UCL and I saw uh, a dead body and it was completely normal. So that's the thing. And right next to the cafeteria? Actually, not that far. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not that far from what I remember. But the second thing I thought, like, you know, the, the imagery of these, the if we think of the, 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 the wood that uh, makes these ships, like uh, they're, you know, felled and destroyed from Germany, then transported to England, then made use in like for colonial uh, means and neo-colonial means as well. There's something very interesting that it's, it's a, this is just something I thought about while you were talking. So it's not really a fully formed thought. But I know that uh, there's a book called Pirate Enlightenment by David Graeber, which now came out post posthumously after he died, his second book after he died. And there is, uh, I will mention this because I was listening to it just before uh, we have this conversation, but there's an episode of Seriously Wrong with Andrewism, a uh, friend of the pod, called uh, Graeber's Pirate Enlightenment, which came out like yesterday, actually. Uh, well, we're recording this on April 4th, I should say. I don't know when it's going to be out. But yeah, so there is something about that because there's been a more and more um, like increased attention, I think, uh, maybe it's just my circles, but like paid to what used to happen on those boats. Uh, the, the image that we have of pirates as, you know, usually romanticized ideas of pirates. And of course, some pirates were mean and nasty and other pirates were actually pretty, pretty revolutionary in how they thought. And there was this sense that because they were at sea, the rules weren't the same. Like they were able to to operate in this uh, in different ways because for the most part, what we would call the workers were the majority. You know, they, because they you know had to operate the ship, obviously. And when you're in the middle of the ocean or whatever, you're you're the brigadier general or whatever other terms, the captain and whatnot. 
if the captain was kind of like a piece of shit, he was in danger. You know, like the, this something could happen to him, and something did happen to him many times. And so there is, there is, there was, there is this element in which the sea was a potential and did indeed become also a site of emancipation from from allowing, you know, the the marooning communities, as they used to be called, to these uh, different types of pirates and and so on and so forth. That's very difficult to explore in many ways because it happened at sea. And, you know, obviously records were not kept in, in many cases, but it does say a lot that a lot of our imagery of uh, pirates tends to be, you know, the Robert Louis Stevenson types usually, which is not historically accurate. But it, this brings me in my, uh, by now, I, I hope familiar way, uh, awkward way of to the, to the second question, which was, you, you mentioned this idea of different, I'm going to read it first, differently situated people were often thrown together in unexpected ways and how in those tumultuous convergence they fought, made new meaning and took over and sometimes subtle inspiration from one another, establishing a more dynamic history of struggle that can enliven our sense of the reach, scope, sites and stakes of early 10th, 20th century revolutionary actions and ideas. This is on page 17 for those who have the book. And Daniel, you mentioned in like the Google Log that we mentioned that you love the idea that how how Christine has been discussing internationalism as I think the, the, how we talk about kinship or identification of kinship. Like there is this element of you may not come from the same, you may not have the same origins, you may have different backgrounds, you may occupy different positions in the society you find yourself in, but that doesn't mean that uh, bonds of kinship. Uh, that's the term we want to use can't be built and this is something that seems to have got become or was easier to establish on those boats that i'm that i've been talking about that you could have been from a formerly enslaved background you could have been white as we would use today say white you could have an indigenous person kevin what what used to be called mestizo all of that stuff and but you're on the boat and you have to work that boat and at some point if there's something that you know, there, there is some kind of logic that requires a certain non-hierarchy in one way or another, not exclusively, but it's part of it. That through the act of maintaining the boat as uh, to not drown to death, there is a, a kinship that gets formed, and that that's part of the idea of this whole pirate enlightenment that that Graeber uh, talked about. But yeah, Daniel, do you wanna do you wanna talk about this kinship idea that you had? Yeah, um, I think I think that's just. Um... I'm I'm sitting with so many strands. I feel like we're we're like we're 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 in the sea, right? Welcome um, to the fire these slimes, buddy. <laughs> and I, I just wanted to mention kind of an elder who's come up uh, on this on 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 in our conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, W. D. B. Du Bois. Uh, so many times as as a yeah, just I mean, a figure that we could go with so many places. Mm-hmm. But, but I recently just read a story um, uh, um, about W. D. B. Du Bois's travels to Berlin. Studies in Berlin, I think in, it was like 1892 around then, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but there's this anecdote that Du Bois tells of, his, of, of Du Bois's arrival. And uh, Du Bois is racialized as a Jew immediately and gets taken to a Jewish inn. And this really is quite, in some of Du Bois's own diaries and reflections, quite transformative because leaving the, the, the North American context, arriving in Berlin, gets confronted with um, just a completely different environment of racialization. But also gets to learn a little bit and exchange ideas on on how do these processes of othering and racialization work in different environments. Um, and I think there's a journalist Ben Reef, if I'm not mistaken, makes this I think cites this story and also looks at how um, in the Black Atlantic how Paul Gilroy kind of 
mainly drawing on, on black radical philosophers, of course, C.L.R. James, but also on Walter Benjamin and how the idea of diaspora, which comes about to try and make sense of Gullus, of, of, of the exile of Jewish community in, in Europe, helps to kind of supplement or add some vocabulary to explain, among a bunch of other ideas, of course, um, the experience of the Black Atlantic of radical Caribbean Black consciousness. And just these tiny, to me, you know, as, as, as a Jewish person, I think just those figments, the, the idea that there's some ideas that can offer something, um, and in the same, in, in the inverse, the amount, the way in which at least the Jewish community today is drawing on abolitionist thinking to understand and, and find coordinates in a world uh, of, that is deeply confusing and, and, and transformative. To me, it's, it's those cross-pollinations that are fascinating. And I think the book, your book is filled with them. It's filled with the idea that we draw on each other to understand each other and we find hope, radical hope in, in each other. And so I think, yeah, I just kind of, um, I think beyond, I think it's even more than kinship. I think it's like radical, it's like, it's, as you say, it's a convergent space, but it's this kind of like space of radical hope. And I wanted to ask a question because one of the first things that I look for in a book is the, is the acknowledgments page. Mm -hmm. And I think I see you, um, and I'm hearing you speak as well, this is what I feel, is I very much feel you as a teacher. Um, and your acknowledgments is this kind of also like this incredible like listing and, and love letter to all your teachers and to movement organizers and activists and organizers and all the, everyone who have created the collective intelligence that's behind you, but also behind the book with your incredible gifts as well as putting the book together. And I kind of wanted to just ask you a little bit on if you could reflect on teachability. I think your book, what it asked me is, is, is about is to how open are we to learn from particular histories and stories in the past, from, from the fibers that are braided together to make the nooses, how open are we to look, look and be, you know, and, and to be amazed and to be surprised and be willing to open our eyes. So I know mm -hmm. you speak about Robin Kelly, you speak about Ruth um, Gilmore in such beautiful ways. I kind of want to ask you about the idea of teachability and how you understand, um, yeah, internationalism also is an openness to the teachability of other experiences, of other histories, of other times, of other peoples. That's where I'm sitting. Yeah, what, a, what a beautiful question. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful series of reflections from the two of you. I, I really appreciate it. I'm quite, quite touched. <laughs> <laughs> I think... You know, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is just lineages of radical thought. So, you know, I, you know, Du Bois's like magnum opus, Black Reconstruction, is not just an extraordinary story because of, you know, his analysis, uh, you know, which I'd be happy to talk with you for several hours about, but it's also because of just the archival work. What did it mean for this man uh, to do research in segregated archives? I mean, you know, Tulani Davis recently wrote The Emancipation Circuit, which is, you know, revisit, Robin Kelly calls it the kind of greatest book on Reconstruction since Du Bois' Black Reconstruction. And she really puzzles over, like, how did he do this, <laughs> right? I mean, it's difficult if you're like a tenured professor with a big research account to be able to travel to different places. And, you know, like the, the work itself is hard, but how he did it under the conditions in which he did it right, with practically with extremely limited access to the archives is, is, is a phenomenon. And I think, uh, you know, so Du Bois writes that in 35. 
I've been thinking a lot because I've been in dialogue with so many people of the subsequent generation, people like Cedric Robinson, right, who really understood themselves inspired by this early generation of, of thinkers, um, but also were in this really critical moment of what we might understand as the emergence of Black studies and ethnic studies. And so, you know, what's so interesting about Cedric Robinson's magnum opus, Black Marxism, is how extensive the the notes are, right? And what his uh, you know, partner now widow says is like, essentially, he had to assemble a library, an archive that could that could move with the book, because it was not yet available to people, right? So this is a very early moment, where I mean, people forget to put that book in its time, place and condition, you know, a book that's written in the 70s, published in the early 80s, but like the, the things that we take for granted, now in in political thought that you could even describe something joey as like you know a black philosoph philosophic tradition right this was not available then so you know so we we move from one era of like a, an exclusion from the archives and move to another era of like a kind of generosity of of putting an archive in a book that can be shared so that people who don't have access at least know you know where the treasure map is uh so you know i mean i feel like part of what i i I think I tried to be intentional about with my acknowledgments was not only, as you said, to thank all the people who, you know, I mean, it's a collective um, endeavor, you know, I mean, I do owe all those people and more everything for being able to show me how to think about the world. But I think pedagogically, I also wanted to be able to tell people at this moment, this is a distinct moment. This is a moment where we do have ethnic studies. Not only do we have ethnic studies, you know, like most colleges in the U.S. have like diversity offices, right? There's quite entrenched and institutionalized ways in which the things that someone like Du Bois was trying to fight for have a different kind of cast, right? For better and for worse. And I think one of the things that I felt was available for me that was um, the book and the formulations would only have been possible was because of the range of different people who taught me, who invited me into different struggles, right? Who helped me understand that these are always in process and in formation. They're never hardened, right? I mean, the, the comment you made earlier about Du Bois and racialization, right? you know, I mean, I, I think it's quite tempting for the reasons we've talked about before, this kind of tendency towards a false certainty, right? I, I think aspirational authority is also related to a false certainty of imagining like identities, racial identities, ethnic identities, as always religious identities, as always being hardened, right? And being transhistorical. I think we think about political identities the same way. So we don't have a sense of how they shift. We don't have a sense of how people make meaning in the world. We don't have a sense of how people make meaning with other people. So I, I, I never thought about it until you asked, but I do think that the acknowledgements are a way of saying, like, there are convergent spaces that have produced me. You know, there are movements that I think if I was a young person right now, I'm not sure I would understand that I would be invited to be a part of them, right? Because I couldn't say, well, here are the, you know, three identities I, I, I occupy and therefore I have a legitimate uh, claim to fight on behalf of those three things. That was not a part of my formation at all. So, you know, I, I, it's a gentle point. I'm not, I'm not trying to hector anybody about it. You know, I mean, I think there's all kinds of reasons why things have developed the way they have. But I think that there's something very difficult about translating out of this moment where so much has become institutionalized, that there's great incentive to talk as if all these things are hardened and separate and discrete. 
And so, you know, I'm both trying to make the point as well as say, you know, here's some of the steps it took to get me there and that this is still open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. So. I don't know. I don't even have a, a follow up. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot for that. Um, so I, I would, I would I'll have some kind of final thoughts before we get into the book section, but I'm wondering if I can ask the two of you, uh, maybe Daniel, you can start since Christina just spoke to reflect a bit on the conversation we just had and where, uh, what do you think are potential sort of like open questions that you, that you have been thinking about, if that makes sense, uh, that maybe, you know, we can invite Christina on at some point again in the future and we can explore those because obviously, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, this book is so, um, um, rich. I mean, it's not massive. It's 150 pages or so, but it's it's very it's very concentrated, and it's in like you can spend just uh, as much time reading the notes and uh, the going through which I've been doing, like going through the sources that that you use as you do reading the, just the book itself, the, the main text. So yeah, Daniel, what are so, certain reflections that you can share with us? And once again, I put you on the spot. <laughs> oh my goodness, I think I have yeah, I have so many reflections. I think I. Um, I think it's it's a book, and that I I want to like sit with. So I immediately, I think my imagination was flared, and I think, I mean, there's this compliment I think you give to to Gilmore, which I think you know what what it means to set a mind on fire. You know, I think if I'm not mistaken, I, I don't, I don't want to misquote the book, but I think I, I did feel that just with some of the metaphors. And I think it's, I mean, it's when you told the story of the way that you came to the ropes in a moment almost of urgency of deadline pressure, to me it's wild because I feel like I mean you could just sitting with the rope metaphor, sitting with the flag metaphor, I think affording people the space to just sit with a commodity and f- unravel its entire biography, its entire, all of its stories. So something I'm sitting with actually is, you know, I think a lot, uh, uh, Joey, so much of your work focuses on the climate crisis, which to me is just like a misnomer for the systemic ecological uh, crisis of racial capitalism. I mean, there's so many ways to describe that, right? But I think that there's a massive struggle around popular education around radical storytelling around this climate crisis. And to me, the way that, Christina, you approach commodities as ways of, um, like this, it's just simple commodities and braiding and braiding around them is, a, I think, an approach that serves really well to the current moment. And actually, my suggestion, there's a, there's a really great Russian, a historian of Russian colonization. I don't know if you're familiar with Alexander Itkin. Um, he's got this uh, really phenomenal analysis um, of how the Russian empire unravels and develops through internal colonization in a different model in comparison, of course, to the British Empire, American hegemony. Um, and he recently just wrote a book using this kind of the, creating the story of contemporary capitalism through seven commodities, including oil. And literally just sitting with oil can unpack so many stories. I think using this, having you two in conversation, I think would be stunning. Um, because I think that, yeah, I think we, we face um, a kind of touching upon your last point, Christine, around kind of um, identities and I think challenges that we face in terms of building uh, radical, powerful, inclusive, justice-demanding movements today. It's that, and especially when it comes with climate and ecology, which are often sidelined and, and liberalized, um, I think there's a need for, fi- for, 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 for telling stories, for telling uh, counter-histories from below in ways that open people up uh, remind people of what's possible, what was possible, um, and what is possible. Um, but finding kind of, as you, were, I think you used the word handhold, which I think is a beautiful metaphor. Like things are overwhelming. What a inroads, whether it be a commodity, a material, a particular historical moment, 
an axis of time, which allow us to find our feet to make sense of the puzzlement which we're confronted with, um, and to also to anchor ourselves in, as you were saying, like a radical lineage of thought and action and praxis that can allow you to feel like you've got a space in that story um, and the stories of the future as well. So I think that's just what I'm sitting with is inspiration and, and gratitude and also just, yeah, for excitement for more footholds that allow us to, to climb on the shoulders of elders. That's really beautiful. And I, 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 I want to say that one of the reasons I was so excited about talking to you both today is I, I, I've been quoting from this podcast and particularly your conversation, because I think the things that you've said in terms of uh, a kind of revolutionary temporality is how I interpret mm. it, right? A way of understanding the urgency of this moment as, you know, as being existential, right? And yet approaching urgency without the temporality of neoliberal yeah. panic, right? Because I think within that temporality, we lose something of ourselves, right? When you start operating like a machine or in a way that a machine can easily replicate, you've, you've lost your connection to people. And so, you know, I, I was really moved by, by your conversation, the one that's on the podcast, because I feel like there's all these ways in which, you know, you talk about the challenge to do both, right? We don't have time to lose. And also we can't talk as if we have no yeah. time, <laughs> yeah. right? And I think that there's something very meaningful about, I love this metaphor of finding your feet, mm -hmm. right? We have to find it. We have to give people permission to find theirs. There's no way we can walk if we can't find mm -hmm. our feet, right? So I, I, I just, I appreciate the tension and I, I appreciate the attention. <laughs> to, you know, the difficulties of establishing that temporality. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks a lot, the two of you, for, for those reflections. So the, the, usually the way I finish um, episodes, and that's largely because I don't know how to end conversations, is I ask guests to do homework and to, and to recommend three books. Uh, so what are the three books that you would recommend, Christina? Okay, great. So... Uh, so I've chosen three books. The first is, um, it's called, uh, dark sweat, white gold, California farm workers, cotton and the new deal by Debra Weber. Mm. So I think this is a really important book, uh, for any number of reasons. I think one thing that's been really striking to me was how little people understand the radical history of Mexican workers, uh, Mexican farm workers before, the 1960s, I think people have a sense of like Cesar Chavez and the UFW in a later period. But Weber, you know, like I, I think the 30s is kind of preoccupied by like John Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath. Right? So we have a sense of the Okies struggling, but we don't have an extraordinary sense of how Mexican workers were critical in the largest agricultural strikes, how they brought a militancy and a knowledge of the Mexican Revolution. Uh, and I think that what Weber does so uh, incredibly is the way that she draws on oral history in order to reconstruct this. Um, and maybe I'd say second and somewhat relatedly is um, uh, uh, Paco Ignacio Taibo II, who's one of my favorite uh, writers from Mexico. Um, they, they're, uh, Seven Stories Press is about to uh, re-release a translation of his book, Pancho Villa, A Narrative Biography. So this year is the 100th anniversary of the death of Pancho Villa. Um, and I think what's so interesting about the book is it's like, it's not just 
the story of Pancho Villa. It's, uh, it, you know, every chapter Taibo is thinking about what the archive says, what historian says, what oral history said, what the rumors were, what the anecdote, what the jokes, what the photographs tell us. You know, he makes this distinction that the oral historian Alessandro Portelli makes, that there's a distinction between what actually happened and what was said to have happened. And so, you know, in this kind of spirit of social history, my favorite part of this book is that you know, as I mentioned, sometimes you have to go and follow the well-known figure in order to be able to tell the story of the world around it. And you get an extraordinary sense of the insult, the injury, the daily violence, the, the gendered violence, like all of the things that people faced in the lead up to the revolution and in, you know, and in the course of the revolution itself that uh, would have produced uh, a Pancho Villa, would have, would have made people want to turn this person into a legend. So I think it's just there's a really, the narrative biography is an interesting form, but you rarely get to see the, kind of some of the questions that we talked about today about like, how do you make history? How do you wrestle with all these different voices? And the last one is, um, uh, the last one is a book that I really learned about. Well, I, I learned about it before, but I was so moved by your discussion in the podcast. It's uh, Revolution and Disenchantment, Arab Marxism in the Binds of Emancipation by Fadi Bardwell. Uh I, I, I mean, I love this book and I love the conversations that you've had. Um, so, uh, you know, the book is a way of thinking of the struggles of the Arab left in the 60s, particularly in Lebanon. But I would just say that one of the things that moves me is that this book, I think, helps articulate the kind of political impasse of the present moment. Uh, you know, I think on one hand, Badawil does a really good job of saying there's a way that, you know, struggles for liberal democracy can position people as being like unwittingly naive or cynical proponents of pro-Western imperialist projects like accomplices of empire mm -hmm. or authoritarian nationalists, mm -hmm. you know, which are kind of soaked in their own self-mythology, you know, as if there's this unbroken history of righteous anti-colonial struggle. Uh, and I think what I really love is the way that Bartowell thinks about this impasse, kind of political retreat, and how different forces are taking advantage of that impasse and mm -hmm. retreat. So, you know, these are three works that are very much on my mind, and I just would encourage everybody to listen to the conversations uh, with with Fadi and Joey. Uh, I'm I'm so glad <clears throat> I'm so glad that you've engaged with Fadi's books. Uh... He uh, and yeah, and the, I think it was the first. Or second, I don't remember. No, it was the first episode I had with him, where I asked him about the um, a struggle that I a difficulty I think we still have in Lebanon on those that those of us who call themselves anti-sectarian. Um, how do we actually deal with sectarianism? What what does that require? Because it's a political system. It's also social cultural. It's economic. It's it's deeply embedded. It's deeply embedded in many ways. The term sectarian is not adequate because it it kind of gives you this idea of like you know you're Shia and you hate Christians or you're Christians and you hate Sunnis and that's not how it operates most of the time. Uh, most people would be welcomed in most spaces regardless of where they come from in Lebanon as long as they're Lebanese because there is a xenophobia element actually to to sectarianism. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating book that I'm still kind of I I, I read it in in the past few months and I'm still kind of sitting with it, and I love that uh, Fadi also um, had like published this dialogue in some sense or this reflection of Aimé Césaire when Aimé Césaire uh, 
left the, the, the French Communist Party uh, in the 50s or something. And the, his his argument for, for doing so is that the French Communist Party was, I forgot which term he used, but uh, was like, um, ah, sorry, was like permanently stuck or something like that in 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 this game of spheres of influence you know the soviets versus the americans and not quite paying attention to what is effectively most of the world uh and so that 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 resonated a lot with me and i know fadi and i uh both from like a lebanese uh perspective if we can say that at least from that positionality but specifically as lebanese who saw syria for the Syrian revolution for the the momentous event it was and then saw the backlash against it whether locally like in Syria with the regime and so on but also internationally uh with like you know seeing refugees and being scapegoated all of that stuff <clears throat> as being very a very interesting convergence we might say like i can easily imagine a book like this one like yours uh with those same elements in the sense of like if you think of I don't know how to make a something, whatever the the something is, and in one way or another, there's going to be Syria or another situation like Syria that's involved in this in one way or another, and mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating. It's really it's depressing at times, but it's also very fascinating. And there's so much that's happening, or that has happened, that's continuing to happening in Syria, that I feel could be rightly described as as revolutionary. Whether it's in Rojava, which is a bit a bit better known uh, among leftists, but also in other parts of Syria that are in this very uh, gray zone legally, some of them are mm-hmm. held by the regime, some by rebels, some by Turkey, some by jihadists, and so on. But they are there are so many other so many things happening usually on the ground that are fascinating and that you only kind of really hear about if you're following that one private Facebook group or that WhatsApp group or whatnot, and then maybe later on it becomes public. Like the one I'm thinking of is mm-hmm. the book, uh, no, the the library, the underground library in Daraya, uh, which was really became more known in other two books on it, uh, one in French, one in English. I think the French one was published, was translated into English as well, uh, because it was underground. So obviously they they had to protect themselves and they had to keep it private. Um, for those listening, that's Daraya, D-A-R-A-Y-A. So just write that in library, you'll find it. There's a couple of books on it. And so when Daraya fell, when it was destroyed by the Assad regime in, I don't even remember which year now, 2016, I believe, um, that's when the, the the story of that library came out because the people who took part in it left the city and started you know, talking about it, obviously. And that's that's very interesting to me. It does mean that there's so much happening usually on the, beneath the surface, like on, on the ground level, um, that are still worth exploring because they say a lot about what's above the surface, to just to use that metaphor. That there's a reason why they had to go on the ground, and that's because they were dangerous, not just because it was uh they were threatening to the regime in the way they they were operating. And that that's very interesting because at the end of the day it was just a library. Um mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well if I please, could just please. make a small point and just to kind of conclude we're maybe at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the book is called Arise, yeah. right? And it's the first word of the international. Yeah. And I'm you know, I think there's a, I talk about it in the conclusion that there's a really interesting history of people using different lyrics from the song to, to think about the struggle of internationalism in their own time, right? So most famously is the Wretched of the Earth, which I think a lot of people don't 
realize is mm-hmm. the line, you know, arise ye prisoners of starvation, arise ye mm-hmm. wretched of the earth, right? And Fanon is trying to think about colonial Algeria, this, you know, internationalist struggles from there and beyond, you know, by invoking that title. I, I, I quote uh, a figure that I talk about in the book, Dorothy Healy, who was a huge labor organizer in California. She was a member of the Communist Party for most of her life. But she does this really interesting oral history towards the end of her life, right after she leaves the party. And she says, if I ever write a memoir, I want it to be called Traditions Chains Have Bound Us. Mm-hmm. So the lyric, of course, goes, no more traditions chains have bound, uh, no more traditions chains will bind us. But she wanted to change it to Traditions Chains Have Bound Us. And she says, as, as soon as a revolutionary um, tradition you know, no longer has a critical sense of where it is, you know, stops questioning, stops thinking, stops trying to grapple with its moment. It's no longer revolutionary. It's become something else. And so, you know, the book is called Arise because it's inviting people to do that work. I think this is actually something quite threatening and frightening. I think like the sense of imagining ourselves as inheritors of political moments that are impossible for us to imagine at present, right? We, we have great acolytes and heroes of earlier moments, and only they could have, you know, understood the situation they were in. Only they could have articulated their struggles. And our great power is being able to quote mm-hmm. Fanon or quote mm-hmm. Cabral or quote mm-hmm. somebody. And, you know, that's some kind of trump part card we play, you know, in a political debate. I think the harder work is is, like you say, opening that up, you know, being able to think about our situation and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, to, to, to quote Cabral right after <laughs> say, this is what we shouldn't do. You know, there are no easy victories, yeah. right? And so, I mean, the conclusion of my book is really a way of saying, like, how, how do we both humble ourselves and also empower ourselves to understand the moment that we're in, to understand that the only way these traditions are alive, the only way we can build internationalism is to think about it anew. Right, not take concepts that were built a hundred years ago, not take a definition of internationalism a hundred years ago, not think about a world system that's even twenty mm-hmm. years old. We have to think about this moment, we have to think about the array of forces, and we have to have a vision of what we want that's as big as the forces that are arrayed mm-hmm. against us mm-hmm. right now. But this is a necessary invitation because if we're not building, thinking, being gentle with each other, finding our feet, Daniel, <laughs> right? We can't walk yeah. anywhere. Amazing. Thanks a lot for, I think that's just an amazing way to, 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 to end this conversation as well. So all that's left is for me to thank you, Christina, for coming on. Um, Daniel as well. Thank you for coming on. Christina, uh, uh, do you have what other podcasters call pluggables? Like do you want to, uh, other folks, can they check your website? You know, that sort of thing. And please re-mention your book's title for, for those who've missed it up until now. Sure. Well, if you're just tuning in, I'm Christina Heatherton. My new book is Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. Um, And I also uh, co-host and co-produce a podcast called Conjuncture. Uh, So if you look up Conjuncture, the Gramscian turn, not conjecture, (laughs) Conjuncture, you'll be able to find some interviews actually with some of the people I talked about today. Amazing. Amazing. And Daniel, where can people find you? Nowhere. Uh, (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Every now and then with Joey here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. Thanks a lot, guys. The Fire These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayou. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. 
If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.